You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. You have heard it said, hindsight is 2020. And if you think about it, a lot of the things that you've had happen in your life that uh, were like an oops, a big mistake, you can often kind of work back in time and you can say, you know, there was this moment when I made this particular decision and it, it sort of knocked over a domino. And that domino just unleashed one thing after another and here we are. Well, today we're going to go back to the original domino. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 3 and we're going to see really the root cause of all your problems. Now, it's not enough today to just point out the root cause of all your problems. I do have a solution. But we need to hear this as we're going through Genesis. These first things, these most important principles, that's why we're here. We need to understand these first principles because if we're going to share the gospel effectively, we need to have the Word of God deep in our hearts and these primary elements of, of the world, of the universe even, come out to us in such a clear fashion in the first few chapters of Genesis. So if you have your copy of Scripture, will you stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock of God's Word? And we're going to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree it was good for food and that it was delight, a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? And have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. He said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of the face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let's pray. 
Lord, sometimes we need to take a moment and read your word and let it sink in. Lord, I pray that you will help us to meditate on these words as hard as they may be. And God, I pray you will open uh, our minds and our hearts to the solution. Lord Jesus, grab a hold of us today and give us wisdom and save us. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Paul, in the book of Romans, lets us know that when sin entered into the world, creation itself began to groan. Listen to what Paul says, Romans 8.22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And I'm here to say to you this morning, I, I know in my heart, and I'm sure it's true in your heart, there have been things in your life that have broken your heart and caused you to groan unto God. But we need to realize that God has given us His Word. And what we see is the first step to silencing the groan in your heart is the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the step. It's the, it's the way. If you are experiencing the pains and the struggles of this world, if the sins of others, and more importantly, the sins of your own heart have got you down, then we need to turn to the cross. We need to realize that this moment in time, Genesis 3, this first sin causes a cosmic disaster. It, and it took literally a radical act of God to fix it. I think we need to understand it's, it, it's okay for us to talk in terms of, of, of the drastic nature of what's going on here because of our sin and because of what God would have to do to fix it. Genesis 3 is one of those foundational passages in Scripture. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have the creation. And here in Genesis 3, we have the fall in John 3.16, we have, of course, redemption. And then in Revelation, we have the consummation. But those are the main elements, the flow of the narrative of Scripture. And so here in Genesis 3 today, uh, we realize that we're looking at one of the major elements of who we are and why we're here. We are here because we are crying out collectively. In a song like we just heard sung, we know that we need something. We need a sacrifice. We need the blood of the Lamb. And, and, and really, to understand why we need that, we come back to Genesis 3. Now, here's something I want you to get in your mind. There's a picture I need you to get in your mind. I want you to see a door, okay? In your mind's eye, just put a door there in your mind's eye, okay? And I want you to realize, in a sense, every single religious, man-made uh, approach to God is closed in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 closes every single door to fellowship with God. Sin closes every single door. So why do I say that? Because around the world, there are people who are acknowledging that something's wrong and broken in the world. And the answer for man-made religion is to always try to figure that out and to move in that direction through some sort of effort or action on our part. We're not, Christians are not the only religious people in the world, but here's the thing. We believe that our needs are so great that we can't earn back what Adam and Eve lost. This is what's unique about Christianity. Also, Christianity is very open-eyed and realistic about 
the proclivity of sin and the pervasiveness of sin. Sin is no small thing. It is not an accident or an oops. It, these are cognitive, deliberative choices that we make in defiance of God. And this is no small thing. It's easy when we read these 19 verses to say, well, obviously, the serpent is the villain of our narrative. That is true. But the sad reality is that his influence on us is great. And when we give in to sin, in a sense, we become the villain of the story. Now, that's not what you know, people like to hear, I think today in churches, people like to come and they want to hear that they're the hero of their own story. But when we read Genesis 3, guess what? You're the villain. You're the guy with that maniacal laugh, you know, in, in, in the story. You're, you're the bad guy. And nobody likes that. We want to be the hero. Listen, Jesus is the hero. The biggest problem we have in the world is we're trying to be something that only Jesus can be for us. And that's why we humble ourselves to the word and when we sin, let me tell you what we're doing. When we give in to sin, we are giving up a little bit of life. We are made living creatures according to Genesis 2-7. And every time we sin, there's a little bit of our soul that dies along with that. There is no such thing as simple disobedience. Every single time that you choose something contrary to God, it is complicating your life more than you know. Not just your relationships around you, but your relationship with your Creator. This world is messy because of sin. And we see this in Genesis 3. And it all begins with the father of lies. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 7 a little bit more closely together. Obedience to God's commands, you know, seems easy. The easiest thing in the world. And yet it's the hardest thing in the world. Look at this passage. It's very interesting to me. The more I look at it, uh, we realize that it was a pretty clear-cut thing here. Here's this garden, Adam and Eve. All these wonderful gifts are yours. Here is one thing that you cannot have, and that was kind of it. Now, you know, uh, when things are complicated and we make mistakes, you kind of say, okay, well, you know, it was complicated. And uh, like when I'm putting together something that I got at Ikea, it's complicated. <laughs> you know, when the legs are on the top, you know, it, I, it, it just happens. I'm not very good at building things. But when the instructions are simple, there's something more going on here. There is a willpower here to do something contrary to God. Now, I don't have to illustrate that for you because you know what that willpower is. When you want something, even when you know that it's not right unto God, when there's clear passages of Scripture that tell you that it's wrong and you still want to go after it, well, that's kind of what we have here. Adam and Eve, they fell hard. They fell early. And the narrative pace here, the narrative pace here in chapter 3, it's almost, now I can't prove this, but it's almost like Sun hasn't even, the sun hasn't even set on the seventh day, and, and the fruit, uh, uh, the juice of the fruit is running down their, their mouths. It was just like that quick, the serpent enters in and starts to tempt. Temptation is a constant threat to our soul's true happiness. I want you to hear this. Every temptation in your life is no small matter. It is a mortal threat to your joy. Do you hear me? A temptation to sin is a mortal threat to your joy. Not just in relationship one with another, but again, most importantly, your relationship with your heavenly father. We know 
that the serpent is evil and wrong and is trying to destroy us. He is the devil, according to Revelation 12, 9. He has been crafty since the beginning. We see this in chapter 3, verse 1. And here's the deal. We're naive. Now, last week, a few people, remember, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but I grew up uh, kind of in southern Illinois, western Kentucky, and I used to have the most amazing southern accent. I, I still do every once in a while when I get going. And so last week, instead of saying naked, I said naked, and some people lost their minds. <laughs> Listen, in heaven, they're going to say naked, okay? Not naked or whatever. But here's the deal. Naked or naked, whatever, naive. Get that word. Naive. We are naive. The whole idea here is, is that human beings are, are, are we're more gullible than we like to be. Uh, sometimes we're self-confident, we think we've got it all figured out, but here we're reminded that really our hearts, our, our minds are very vulnerable. The devil knows this. So here, I, I want you just to know this. If, if, if sin has had its grip on you, listen, it's because you're just as naive as Adam and Eve. You're just as naive as I am. We all sometimes, we see something and we think it's what we want. I, I don't think Adam, Adam and Eve are idiots. I just think they were tricked. There were slick words uttered by this serpent. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it right. This is, in Genesis 3, the first conversation in the world about God. This is the first conversation about God. And notice, the first conversation about God misrepresents God. There's a danger here. This is why some people say, well, Pastor Jeremy, why, why do you, you know, you go through books of the Bible and you, you, you know, I've been accused of being a teacher uh, and that kind of thing. Listen, I'm, I'm telling you, when we get God's word wrong, we do all kinds of stupid things. We need to make sure that we're accurate. Now, why am I saying this? Well, if you look at the text, now, now notice I didn't say you're stupid. I said, we do stupid things. That's different, okay? So just want you to know that. I'm not being mean. I just know that it's easy to think you read something and that you know what's right. And Adam and Eve thought that. So notice this. God spoke. Adam and Eve were there, but they didn't listen carefully. And this is what the devil does. The devil does his best work with us when we have imprecise knowledge of what God's word says. When we know just enough to be dangerous, guess what you are? Dangerous. And too often in church, that's us. We've heard the scriptures, but we don't necessarily look closely. Now notice, this is small, okay? Wish I had more time, but Eve actually misquotes God slightly in verses 2 through 3. The Lord said, you may surely eat, 2.16. But Eve says, we may eat. And she even adds there in verse 3, neither shall you touch it. That's the first example of legalism, adding to God's word. She doesn't, she's got the gist right, but she adds just a little bit. And that's where the trouble comes in. These minor alterations have unimaginable consequences. Let me give you a couple quick examples. Have you ever heard this? Money is the root of all evil. That is a misquote of 1 Timothy 6.10, which actually says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, those two sounded very similar, but theologically, those are a big difference. Because if you take the first one, you're going to say that if you're rich, then you're automatically evil. That's not what it's saying. It's saying if you love it, and you love it and make it an idol, yeah, that's a problem. Here's another one. This too shall pass. 
Now, Gandalf may have said that to a hobbit, but Jesus never said that to any of us. Listen, that's not in Scripture. Nowhere. How about this one? God helps those who help themselves. Romans 5.8 says just the opposite. It says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, we can't help ourselves if we're lost in sin. We are dead, dead, dead. We are made alive when the Spirit of God breathes in us, and then we can say Jesus is Lord. You can't help yourself, but Jesus will help you. If you cry out to Jesus, he will save you. And that's just a couple examples. The enemy loves us to question God. I mean, today the secular world loves to tell us, why do you believe in those old words? Let me tell you, those old words are better than any new words I've ever read in this world. They're true. Oh, friends, the word was enough. But human beings so often don't listen. Friends, death is worked into this equation when we don't listen 1 John 2, 16, for all that is in this world, this world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is constantly trying to mix in a lie. And let me just say this. I hope you'll hear me. Genesis 3 tells us that none of us can outrun this problem. There's no way to outrun your sin problem. We are all trapped Now, very quickly, let me mention this. When Jesus was tempted, go to Matthew 4 and notice. Every time the devil tempts him, he quotes Scripture accurately and in context. And he is able to resist the devil, not by punching him in the face. Sorry, Johnny. But by, because that's what we want to do, right? We want to punch him in the face. But by resisting him with just a solid word, which is what you prayed this morning. It was beautiful. We resist by just standing firm and standing on the Word of God. That's what we do. That's what Jesus did. Listen, if the devil is messing up your life, listen, get on your knees, get in the Word, and trust in the power of God. Because everything else will lead you the wrong direction. Listen, avoid the enemy and embrace the Word. That's what God's calling us to do, Ridgecrest. That's what He's calling us to do. As the people of God, our second point is this, the presence of the Lord. See, God shows up when we need him most, especially when we're in trouble. And he has solutions to our problems. But don't forget that when God shows up, he shakes you up. If you're asking for God to come, that's a good thing. But you better get ready. Because when God shows up, he's going to reveal the unholiness in your life. When true light shines, the darkness is revealed. But it also gets chased away. We need the presence of God. You can't walk with God, though, while you're walking in sin. Hear me, brothers and sisters. We need to be a people who are holy unto God. If we are claiming to be saved by the cross, we need to be living in the power of the cross and avoiding sin. Sin put Jesus on the cross. Don't dabble in something that nailed Jesus to the cross. Get rid of it. It only took the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, verse 8, to put Adam and Eve into a tailspin. They tried to hide, but that's impossible. God knows where you are. He knows where you are. He knows you're here. Okay, so we're not talking about just geographically. God knows you're here, but God knows. 
I don't necessarily have the spirit of discernment. I can't look you in the eye and tell you what it is that is causing you to miss the blessings of God. I I don't know if I even want that power. But listen to me. You know it. I don't have to tell you, but right now the spirit is showing you that sin that's tripping you up, that, that, that ailment of your soul. You need to realize when God is here, when he is present, he's going to reveal these things. And when he reveals them, we need to confess them. Restoration cannot take place until confession has occurred. And here's what scares me. And I'm not complaining, and I'm not trying to get you down in the altar. But there was a time, I remember, I'm just old enough to remember when people came to the altar a lot. And that is a good thing because when we are being convicted by the Holy Spirit, we need to be confessing those sins. And we have not been a confessing church. And I mean that in terms of the broader evangelical spectrum. We no longer feel the need. We sit in our seat in our pew and we take the abuse from the preacher. (laughs) Okay, I'm a sinner. All right, I got it. And we don't do anything about it. It's like, yep. It's like when a teacher asks you to do something, right? And you say, sure, and you don't do it. Well, you're going to get in trouble. You're not going to get a good grade there. Well, listen, if you're trying to make a good grade in Jesus, know this, you're going to get an F every time if you don't have the blood of Jesus. Okay, so this isn't about earning anything. We need the blood of Christ. But when we feel the weight of our sin, we have to confess it. Shame, fear, hiding, all these things are present here in the text in verses 8 through 13. But notice, when Adam gets called out, he does what every good husband does. He blames his wife. Every bad husband, actually, is a better way of putting that. I will not say that in the second service when my wife is here. But here's the deal. You can't rationalize your way to restoration. You can't say, God, I really meant to do better. Well, you know what? God knows exactly what you meant to do. He knows it all. Just just approach God as if he knows everything and you're going to be okay. You're not okay when you approach God as if you've got something in your back pocket he didn't know about. It's not the way it works, but it's the way we function. God shows up in the cool of the day, but he brings the heat of conviction. It may be the cool of the day, but I'm telling you, they were feeling some fire because they knew that there was sin. And friends, if you don't admit sin, you are in trouble. I think of this all the time. People today seem to just try to move their sins around. We'll talk with people. We'll have accountability. And we'll, we'll try to do a little bit better. But really all we're doing is kind of like uh, yesterday we moved my daughter into her dorm. And I guessed, I guessed there was a sandstorm in her dorm room before we moved in. There was about this much dust everywhere. I'm trying to lug all this stuff upstairs. And Jenny's dusting. Now at first I wasn't real happy with the bride that God had given me. Because I'm carrying all this stuff up the stairs. And I go in there and I'm like, my goodness, this is like literally a sandstorm was in here. I don't know what happened. But just imagine if Jenny took all, if she took all that dust and tried to sweep it under the rug. It's still there. And I think that many of us, when it comes to our sins, it's, it's still there. We keep going back to it because we, we, we tried to put it under a rug. Listen, if the, if the Spirit of God is here today, if God shows up and He's walking around in this place and He's convicting you, don't just sweep it under the rug. Nail it to the cross. There's no other way. Because there's a curse. But there's also a hope. The curse and our only hope. Verses 14 through 19. Now I want you to notice this. Often we talk about the curse of, of Adam and Eve, but the truth is, is that the only one that's cursed is the serpent. Isn't this interesting? 
The one that gets the curse is the serpent. Now, the childbirth thing and the man having to work hard, you know, that's, a, that's definitely not a positive, but it's not used or, or, or termed as a curse, all right? It's the consequences, but the curse is on the serpent. And what we need to realize here is that Adam and Eve are told in these verses that they will experience hardship as they do life together. But the hardship, here's what I want you to get, the hardship is not without hope. Genesis 3 tells us that we're going to have hard lives in this world, but it never, ever, ever tells us that we don't have any hope. We are here today to celebrate the joy that we have hope in Jesus' name. We know that Adam and Eve messed up, that sin has changed things, that life cannot be the same ever again for the sinner, but God spells out that there is a new life and a new creation. That's really what Paul's talking about in Romans 8, 19 through 22. He says, yeah, the world is groaning, but Christ is coming. And Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, but they are not banished from God. Listen, we come here because we are not banished from God. We come here to worship because we can enter into his presence together and we can experience the joy of salvation together. Friends, it is such a good thing because Jesus has, in a word, in a phrase, kind of reversed the curse. He's given us the ability to know him and to know him through his word. Now, I just want to say something very quickly here. Um, When we get to verses 16 and 17... You know, there's sermon after sermon right here for husbands and wives and all of those things. I think one scholar put it really well when he talked about the tension here. um, Because we think about, okay, childbirth, that's a bad deal. Um, I I lived through that twice with my wife, alongside my wife. Uh, I survived it. Um, She did too. But anyway, um, (laughs) and then hard work. I actually had somebody tell me last week that, that I finally preached a sermon they didn't like because I said that work was from God and they were kind of upset about that. It's another story. It's a joke, I hope. Uh, Anyway, um, but what we, what we have right here is we have this, this wonderful and terrible vision of how the, the sin in our hearts impacts our relationships. Notice this. Alan Ross says, the woman at her worst would be a nemesis to the man and the man at his worst would dominate the woman. That's what we see in verses 16 and 17. We see that the the fall has affected how we relate to the most important person in our lives. And how when we're giving in to our sinful inclinations, we're either trying to deceive or dominate. When you're trying to deceive the one you love, you are in the grip of the serpent. When you try to dominate the one you love, you are in the grip of the serpent. Sin doesn't just cause us to act out badly. It causes us to think and feel badly. We need help. Let me just give you a couple points here. We must come to terms with the reality that every sin we commit amplifies the consequences of sin. Your rebellion against God never goes unnoticed. God is here, however, to challenge you and to make things right. The weed of sin, it grows now. Look at verse 18. But Jesus plucks the weed away. He will crush the head of the serpent. Notice that in verse 15. But not before the serpent inflicts some pain. Look at that. Genesis 3.15. The pain of sin is real. There will be pain, but there will be victory. 
the serpent will be crushed. I think this is exactly what Paul is referring to in Romans 16, 20, when he says the God of peace, and this is weird, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now, that, that, that is such a good Pauline statement. The God of peace is going to crush this. You see that? You see the language? The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. I just love this. It's like violent language and then grace and peace. And that shows kind of this, this tension between the wrath of God against sin. But listen, God has wrath against sin, but he loves you enough to die on the cross for your sins. Sin's curse was killed on the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh, turn to the cross. Genesis 3 is the root cause for every heartache in this old world. And sin, your sin, has closed the door to heaven. If you are not fully trusting in Jesus, the door to heaven is closed. But if you are trusting in Jesus, all the sins and all the pain in your life are nailed to the cross and you bear it no more, as the hymn says. That's good theology. Jesus said this, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So here's the deal. I said already, the door is closed by your sin, but Jesus has the keys to that door. And we are told in Revelation that he has the keys to death and hell. He can open up the door if you will trust in him. John 14, 6, my life verse. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. And he's calling out to you right now. And if you're feeling like you have gone down some paths and some avenues that have been dead ends, it's probably because they are. But right now in this moment, just because sin has entered in, it doesn't mean it has to stay there. Let it go. The world is groaning. You may be groaning, but there is grace. Let the Lord Jesus open that door. Now, as we finish this up, there's some of you that need to make a decision to let Jesus, to, to ask Jesus, to receive Jesus into your heart. Some of us, though, we are believers. We, we are Christ's followers, but that fellowship has been uh, hurt by our sins. Friend, the only way to restore fellowship is, is to confess, to admit that the serpent has misled you, and to turn your heart again unto Christ. We call that a call to repentance and salvation, also a call to repentance and rededication. Whatever it is, come to Jesus. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.